If only Audible was free and had nothing but Bitcoin content. Fear no more. The crypto economy is here. Welcome back to the show, guys. I am Guy Swan, your host, the guy who's read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we've got another great piece by returning author Connor Brown, uh, a another Medium post. And this one was really good. I had a number of people recommend uh, this one to me uh, last week. And it is titled, Stop Calling Bitcoin Deflationary. So let's go ahead and jump into this piece. And then we will talk about it afterward. Stop calling Bitcoin deflationary. You can also find a version of this article in the upcoming Bitcoin Times, Volume 2. Bitcoiners reject inflation. We believe it represents a regressive, silent tax, slowly siphoning wealth from the average person to the politically well-connected. In response, Bitcoin critics claim that while inflation may be frustrating, the alternative is much worse, a stagnant, deflationary economy. This article will 1. Begin by laying a conceptual foundation for what deflation is. 2. Move on to address critics' concerns with falling prices. And 3. Conclude by showing how Bitcoin's monetary supply actually guards against deflationary spirals. Part 1. Bitcoin is not deflationary. Its money supply is relatively constant. First, we need to establish what deflation refers to. While decreasing prices are colloquially referred to as deflation, Deflation is formally a decrease in the supply of money or money substitutes. This is an important distinction. Deflation is not a decrease in prices itself, but a monetary phenomenon that sometimes causes decreasing prices. In this sense, Bitcoin is not truly deflationary. Bitcoin's supply will not decrease, but will instead continue to increase until the block rewards run out sometime around 2140. At that point, Bitcoin will reach a hard cap of 21 million coins. Below, you can see a graph of Bitcoin's emission rate, starting with a relatively high inflation rate and slowly leveling off over time to a hard cap of 21 million coins. The Bitcoin protocol is not inflationary or deflationary in the long run. It is instead programmed to be disinflationary, culminating in a constant monetary base without changes to the supply. Some may argue the following. Despite this projected constant base, lost coins create deflation as they are functionally coins removed from the circulating supply. This should not be a concern. Coin losses will decrease over time as coin custody becomes more professional and user-friendly. As a result, the highest rates of lost coins were in the earliest days of Bitcoin, and this will continue to decrease over time. Thus, as expansion of Bitcoin supply approaches zero, so will decreases in supply from lost coins, culminating in a nice middle ground. 
Another argument from critics is, quote, While Bitcoin's supply may be constant, populations are growing. Therefore, a rigid monetary supply will lead to deflationary pressure as a growing number of people chase a fixed monetary pie, end quote. This is also a dubious claim. Across a variety of cultures, population growth declines as societies experience urbanization and higher levels of education. This downward pressure will continue into the future as regions with the highest levels of population growth continue to industrialize. Above are the latest estimates for population growth from the United Nations. These figures predict population equilibrium by 2100. It's quite ideal, really. A leveling of the world population that coincides with the Bitcoin emission rate approaching zero. Could we have asked for a better match? Bitcoin is not deflationary in the formal sense of the term. Its supply will continue to increase on a curve that should account for lost coins and a growing population over the next century. With a constant monetary base, Bitcoin will not have any inherent pressures towards higher or lower prices. It will function as a pure foundation where prices will fluctuate solely based on signals from market participants. While this is a tidy way of showing Bitcoin is not deflationary, it still doesn't address the crux of the critics' arguments, concerns about decreasing prices. So with this understanding of Bitcoin's constant monetary base in mind, let's debunk them. Part 2. Addressing Concerns About Falling Prices So when critics are concerned about Bitcoin being, quote, deflationary, they actually mean Bitcoin will make prices go down. Generally, critics have three main concerns about these deflationary prices under a Bitcoin standard. Workers being outraged at nominal Bitcoin wages falling. Ever-increasing real debt burdens on Bitcoin-denominated loans. Lack of growth from savers hoarding appreciating Bitcoins instead of investing. But before addressing these specific cases, let's establish a basic understanding of how prices function. Price basics. Falling prices are natural. Imagine a simple item in a competitive marketplace. Let's say a toothbrush. Now assume every year this toothbrush gets a little bit easier to produce. Perhaps machines get a little bit better at manufacturing, or supply chains get slightly more efficient, etc. If our consumer demand doesn't change, what should happen to the price? It should decrease. This should not come as a surprise. Free markets cause product prices to fall as industries become more productive and competitors fight for consumers with the lowest possible prices. This is a process that has been happening for thousands of years as humans apply their ingenuity to fulfilling the wants and needs of others. Do prices always decrease? Certainly not. Plenty of common occurrences that hamper production or spike demand can cause price increases. My point is simply that on long time frames, as humans invest their labor into becoming more productive, items that were once difficult and expensive become cheap and easy to produce. 
thus decreasing prices, are natural and intuitive. Despite this understanding, for decades, prices for basic consumer goods have increased and quality decreased. This is because increased productivity requires a constant monetary base to be felt through prices. Money is the unit that measures this process. In a monetary measuring system with a constant base, i.e. Bitcoin, increased productivity will translate to decreased prices. However, if the monetary measuring stick is tampered with, i.e. printing presses, then prices will increase year after year despite massive increases in productivity. With this theoretical understanding, let's turn to the specific instances critics are concerned about. Concern 1. Decreasing nominal wages. Critics are concerned that falling consumer prices under a Bitcoin standard will spill over to workers' wages, leaving workers frustrated and demoralized. The problem is critics forget what wages represent. Human time. With a toothbrush, it's natural that technological advances make them easier to produce each day, but human time is different. It is truly scarce and irreplaceable. While one type of work may be automated, a new role opens up from other advances. Jobs are not finite. Thus, while the price of a toothbrush should be expected to fall with a constant monetary supply, there is no reason to think the same with the price of human time. Let's look at data points on this. Below is a chart for prices in America over the 1800s. Begin graphic. What we've got is a price level chart throughout the 1800s, and it shows a rather steep decline from around 1815 uh, that led into the 1860s uh, that resulted in 53% decline in the price levels, then a sharp spike during the recession and uh, civil war of the early 1860s, and then afterward another 48% decline in price levels uh, from around the mid-60s on to 1900. As you can see, this was an era with rapidly falling prices. So what happened to wages? They went up. The Bureau of Labor Statistics noted, quote, Overall, the trend of money wages were upward, and the movement of the cost of living was downward. These divergent movements of wages and retail prices combined to produce a substantial rise in real wages. End quote. This dramatic rise is all despite a labor supply that multiplied almost 10x from the beginning of the century and a brutal civil war, devastating economies and killing hundreds of thousands. Now, you may be tempted to argue that prices fell so dramatically because America was young and being developed for the first time, but we can see the same action occurring in the technology sector today. Prices for electronics have been falling for decades, yet companies still manage to pay employees competitive wages. So it's certainly possible that even when prices are naturally falling from increased productivity, that the cost of labor could stay the same or even go up. But if the critics' fears come true and wages do go down nominally, what matters is purchasing power.
To say workers will get upset despite being able to purchase larger amounts of higher quality goods treats them like children unable to do basic arithmetic. In comparison, inflationary money loses its value every year, leaving the average person without a safe place to store their savings while the wealthy profit off financial assets. This is especially painful given the phenomenon of sticky wages. Below is a chart demonstrating a complete decoupling of productivity and compensation that cleanly lines up with leaving the last remnants of a sound money. I definitely recommend going to checking out the chart and going to the website that he links to um, where this chart is coming from. Uh, it is WTF happened in 1971.com. There are numerous charts showing the consequences and illustrating the changes that occurred after we officially broke the gold standard. But the chart in question on our article shows that from 1948 to 1972, worker compensation was right in line with increases in productivity, but then that relationship broke in the early 70s. And measuring from then up to 2017, productivity has increased by 246%, and compensation has increased by less than half of that, at 115%. The trends shown above lead to predictably dire outcomes. Serious and increasing levels of income inequality, populism, and social unrest. If critics were truly concerned about workers, they would support Bitcoin as a savings technology for the average citizen to protect their savings from involuntary, silent dilution. Concern 2. Increasing Real Debt Burdens Critics also claim that as Bitcoin appreciates, real debt burdens from Bitcoin-denominated loans would increase. They fear this will create debtors who are unable to pay and lending rendered impossible. This take is naive at best. It assumes that Bitcoin will appreciate forever. Here, it's helpful to recognize the evolution of Bitcoin as money. A new superior money cannot simply come into the world perfectly formed. It requires time. The early stages involve Bitcoin slowly absorbing value from traditional stores of value on its ascent to global reserve status. This initial phase of price discovery may take decades as Bitcoin gains liquidity and market capitalization against other traditional reserve assets due to its superior monetary attributes. As Bitcoin slowly wins this monetary competition, it will transition to a reliable standard for accounting and exchanging value as well. At these later stages, Bitcoin will become a reliable unit of account as it stabilizes against other assets. Those concerned about pricing debts in Bitcoin are confusing the timeline. Debts should certainly not be priced in Bitcoin now during the early stages. But the good news is no one is suggesting that. However, later in Bitcoin's adoption, once value has slowly stabilized, debts will be easy to price, and their real value will remain stable as the asset itself will have matured into a reliable unit of account. Concern 3. 
stagnant growth from decreased investment or spending. Finally, critics worry that Bitcoin will create a stagnant economy as people hoard appreciating money rather than invest in businesses. This is another case of confusing Bitcoin's evolutionary trajectory. As mentioned above, once Bitcoin's price discovery phase comes to an end, it will slowly stabilize relative to other assets. At that point, it will function as a global value constant for communicating prices and making investment decisions. At these later stages, investors would certainly still be motivated to invest Bitcoin for Bitcoin returns, while simply hodling would be akin to a low, risk-free rate. This shift will actually promote better investments. Due to inflation, high net worth individuals and financial institutions are forced to harbor their money into speculative ventures just to protect themselves from inflation's decay. With Bitcoin functioning as a storage vehicle that cannot be diluted, the manic hunt for a risk-free safety from inflation will be a thing of the past, leading to more accurate and measured investment decisions. But what about spending when prices are decreasing? Will people spend less and slow growth? Let's look at the research. Even the Federal Reserve concluded, quote, what is striking is that nearly 90% of the episodes with deflationary prices did not have depression. In a broad historical context, beyond the Great Depression, the notion that deflationary prices and depression are linked virtually disappears. End quote. This makes intuitive sense as well. Decreasing prices do not mean people are suddenly going to stop spending. People still have needs and will spend their money to meet those needs. This holds for non-essential goods as well. The technology industry has experienced a profound deflationary trend in prices for decades, but consumers keep lining up for new releases. In fact, we should expect people to spend more as prices drop due to the wealth effect of feeling their purchasing power increase. Consumers love seeing prices go down. There's a reason everything in Target is perpetually, quote, on sale. Part 3. How Bitcoin Prevents Systemic Deflation The, quote, deflationary spirals that keep mainstream economists awake at night will be much less common and severe under a Bitcoin standard. Again, Money is the measuring system that market participants use to convey prices. When a money can be manipulated through central banks printing money out of thin air, altering reserve ratio requirements, and raising and lowering interest rates, this measurement system is distorted. By creating a series of artificial market signals and manipulating the price of credit, inflationary monetary supply leads to over-leveraged and mismanaged investment. Risk is mispriced. People can consume more than they produce, and market excess, a la WeWork, can continue for longer than would have happened absent intervention. He shows a chart here, a really great one, showing the difference between actual productivity increases versus debt, and it's taken from Ray Dalio's How the Economic Machine Works, 
Um, highly, highly recommended. And it shows that while productivity increases, you know, only a certain amount, we get debt levels that double that. And then they have to crash back down underneath and then catch back up with the actual productivity. So it's basically demonstrating that the manipulation of interest rates and the availability of debt outside of market signals only works to inflate the market in the short term and requires a drastic and painful collapse in order to get back to what the sustainable consumption based on real productivity actually was. Unfortunately, what goes up must come down. Artificially stimulating an economy leads to poor investments and a bubble that must eventually burst with more painful and pronounced swings. Some notable examples. The Roaring Twenties, sparked by central banks creating artificially low interest rates and an immense foreign bond binge. This intervention prompted unsustainable credit creation, which eventually culminated in the Great Depression. Japan witnessed this in the early 1990s, where years of expansive monetary policy primed a massive uptick in asset prices before their markets eventually cratered. Equities fell over 63% in a few short years, and many real estate markets were cut in half. Continued intervention has led to decades of slow growth and zombification of many firms. The Great Financial Crisis of 2008 also was a deflationary crisis, where a massive liquidity crunch completely froze credit markets and pricing mechanisms. This was exacerbated by easy money policy and artificially low interest rates, along with highly leveraged euro-dollar deposits breaking down. The truly terrifying deflation, bubbles of overconfidence suddenly bursting in the markets, is made much worse when currency can be manipulated at will by large financial institutions. The short-term interest of elected officials causes central banks and politicians to routinely engage in expansive monetary policy for temporary gains, despite disastrous long-term consequences. As Ray Dalio noted in his book of case studies on big debt crises, quote, In many cases, monetary policy helps inflate the bubble rather than constrain it. This is especially true when inflation and growth are both good and investment returns are great. In such cases, central banks focusing on inflation and growth are often reluctant to adequately tighten money. This is what happened in Japan in the late 1980s and in much of the world in the late 1920s and mid-2000s. End quote. Don't believe me? A tweet from Donald Trump. The economy is doing really well. The Federal Reserve can easily make it record-setting. The question is being asked, why are we paying much more in interest than Germany and certain other countries? Be early for a change, not late. Let America win big rather than just win. End tweet. To make matters worse, inflationary money supplies also make recovery harder after the fall. Despite engineering the collapses, authorities often then immediately intervene to bail out firms, once again providing short-term aid and devastating long-term prospects. As a result, zombie firms with chronic mismanagement 
linger in the economy for decades. Will Bitcoin end these credit cycles? Not entirely, but a steadfast monetary foundation would prevent authorities from artificially large credit bubbles and the horrible deflationary consequences they bring. Instead of violent swings, Bitcoin will smooth out credit cycles to their natural rates and form an economic backbone for consumption in line with productivity. Conclusion Bitcoin's supply is not deflationary. Its monetary supply is programmed to be one thing, constant. As the world coalesces around a Bitcoin standard, our new monetary base will facilitate economic signaling in profound ways, bringing sustainable, healthy growth like never before. As a side effect, prices will naturally fall as humans are more productive while avoiding the truly horrifying deflationary spirals caused by artificial monetary injections. A special thanks to Karina for putting up with me while writing this. All right, let's hit our sponsor really quick, and then we will jump back in and talk about this amazing piece by Connor Brown. All right, again, this article was titled, Stop Calling Bitcoin Deflationary, something that I personally am very guilty of. And uh, it was written by Connor Brown. I will link to his Twitter page and his Medium page. Do not forget to go to the original article here and uh, drop some major applause also, lots of different footnotes for exploring other content around, like backing up some of his claims. Um, multiple times in which he said, you know, um, what we actually saw were price decreases or increases, you know, vice versa. There's a little footnote, and then he links to another article or a research paper or something to do some deep diving to show exactly where he got this information, where his sources were, obviously. Um, and uh, there's actually a lot of really great stuff. In fact, one of the articles is from fee.org, and I'm considering reading that one uh, sometime soon as well, just about the Cantillon effect or Cantillon effect. Uh, I, hear, I hear that pronounced both ways, so honestly not sure which one is correct. Um, I've looked it up, and the, the French pronunciation supposedly is the you know a Y sound with the L's, but whatever, who cares? But yeah, tons of great links to explore there, as well as uh, always can recommend uh, WTFHappenedIn1971.com, uh, another wonderful resource for all sorts of stuff. So if you want to do some more digging, go to the article. There's plenty to do. Um, but this is a really, really great piece, and um, it's such an important topic. We've covered, we've covered some... A lot of stuff on this concept, particularly deflation, um, like natural price deflation, and then also um, Bitcoin as a dis disinflationary asset. But there are a lot of, the critics are everywhere. And uh, when you really think about it, I think when you like really lay these criticisms up against the real world, none of them hold up. It's really just a fear of doing anything outside of the status quo. In fact, what we currently have with our inflationary and highly manipulative monetary policy is a crazy radical experiment, one that has been done many, many times and only ever seems to fail. Like, there's nothing remotely desirable about it um, from a historical standpoint 
or from even an analysis standpoint. So to say that we have to worry about deflation, uh, like deflationary prices, is to completely reject that there's anything wrong with, it's the assumption that inflationary prices uh, are good and that these will cause, you know, great things. But, you know, go to WTFHappenedIn1971.com and you're going to immediately see the exact opposite is the case, that detaching from a sound monetary base um, is one of the most destructive things you can do over the long time, and it actually engineers fragility into an economy because everybody's over-leveraged, everybody's like, got debts um, that they can't pay off, which is funny, one of the, the supposed criticisms of a deflationary economy. Um, uh, so uh, let's just kind of go through these because uh, I, I want to hit them, and I'm drinking here, uh, so it's going to be even more fun to talk about deflation while I'm drinking. Hmm. First, it's really hard to not call Bitcoin deflationary. And I think it's really because, uh, in my mind, is there's two reasons. One, uh, deflationary is a little bit more triggering. So I think people, it, it gets people's attention. Um, and, uh, and it is meaningful in the, when you're talking about price deflation. But he's absolutely right. The real truth, the, the, the reality of it is Bitcoin is not at all deflationary. It is disinflationary, but it doesn't quite roll off the tongue. So deflationary is like a shortcut to talking about the consequences of Bitcoin, but we really should focus on being correct, you know, accurate or precise rather than um, just basically taking a shortcut. I've been trying to personally get better at that just because uh, even though I would rather not use disinflationary just because it doesn't, I think it's confusing to more people. Um, uh, of, course, of course, deflationary, the people who I would be talking to in this instance or trying to explain something to you probably don't know what deflationary means either, um, either in the real sense or the price deflationary sense for the most part. But the obvious reality of it is that Bitcoin is designed to have a constant monetary supply. And uh, the actual criticism, I, I liked that he addressed the idea that, you know, Bitcoin supply would be, um, uh, would be constantly falling due to lost coins uh, but that the highest rate of lost coins were in the very, very early days of Bitcoin, A, when it wasn't very valuable. Therefore, there wasn't as much scrutiny uh, tied specifically to large balances of Bitcoin that were you know, only worth pennies or dollars at the time. Um, and then, of course, as well as the, the, the software, the expansion of the market and of services around it, the idea of losing Bitcoin keys will become less and less of a thing. Like, actually the more valuable the network itself becomes and the more widespread and robust the market becomes, which is when you have to quote-unquote worry about the demand increasing um, uh, the price so much, uh, you're going to have fewer and fewer complications with actual supply being deleted because it will literally be, it, it will become rare, more and more rare um, over time. And that uh, it's kind of, funny that we're in a situation where due to its value and uh, the growth rate of its market, it's very likely to basically be a constant, um, something where the deleted supply will continually approach zero during the same period of time where the inflation is approaching zero. And that's a really interesting point to bring up because it's, it's a natural maturation uh, process of a market with, a, with an unfamiliar asset. And we're talking about a digital market. So 
there is a lot of work to do there in regards of figuring out security and multi-sig. But I think those things will become standards. I think anybody who's holding large amounts of Bitcoin will do so in a uh, a key-sharing environment. I think we'll have, particularly when we have uh, technologies like Taproot, where we can hide basically a limitless, to some degree, like with limitations, um, but a, a incredibly large set of sequences, an entire Merkle tree of different um, ways to unlock the coins so that you can basically have it so that a hacker couldn't steal your coins. You'd still have like a time lock period in which you could get them back where you can have a third party hold one of uh, three coins or three keys like Casa or Blockstream in the green wallet, like something that's actually becoming pretty prevalent right now and is a very great way to hold, to have like key recovery services. Like all of those things I think will become ubiquitous. Um, particularly when those transactions, those styles of um, uh, transactions and agreements and contracts are no larger as data sets within the, in the transaction on the blockchain so that they cost the same amount as a normal single like UTXO transfer and look the same as well. So you get the privacy of whatever your, your setup is. And, you know, maybe you put this thing in a trust and you have multiple um, trustees and like managers who can sign for these coins, like the, the, the number of things that you can do to protect these things from being completely lost. Um, you can basically stack complexity on these things indefinitely. Uh, and that's a very, very powerful tool for preventing exactly that sort of thing. And when there's that much value on the line, it will happen. The balances that are lost will be smaller and smaller until hopefully the problem is theoretically fixed, even though obviously there's no such thing as completely fixed, but an, an approaching zero situation. Then there's an interesting point he brings up about population growth, which is another really cool point, because this is something that is totally, if you, you talk to the normal person about this, it's, people have no idea that the, um, uh, the incredible growth in population is actually a consequence of the either the poverty or the wealth of a nation, um, and that what we have actually seen is that there's a there's a limit to this. It's not again, it's an S curve. It's not a exponential curve like everybody say. Oh my God, we keep going at this rate. Um, our, our stupid monkey linear brains can't see or understand the complexity of these systems. And the reality is that the wealthier the nation is, the solution to the population growth is to is free markets, is to make everybody as wealthy as possible. Because what happens is that they have more control over their lives. And poor people have kids because they need workers in the family. They, they literally cannot survive without everyone in the family working. And they have a large number of kids because in extreme poverty, kids die like constantly. Like You have really high mortality rates um, in incredibly poor countries with children. So you know, you have five kids so that three can make it. And that's not, that's suboptimal about a thousand different ways. But when people are wealthy, they actually have the time to decide, to actually make the decision to have kids. It's actually like a real choice and something that you plan your life around. And you have one, two kids. And that's what you see in the wealthier nations. As a nation gets wealthier and the people become more productive and they have more leisure time and they can understand and make long-term planning decisions, they have fewer kids until the population literally becomes stable. 
And the estimates, the the one that he actually um, posted regarding uh, the United Nations, the chart that he um, published, shows that it will taper off at about 10 to 11 billion people. Uh, I had actually read an analysis sometime a couple of years back saying that it would be uh, that it would start to taper heavily at like 9.4 billion. Um, so I don't really know the differences between these models. I don't really know much about this one. But regardless, it's it demonstrates the same principle that um, as uh, populations become saturated and as these uh, uh, economies become more productive, uh, you see the exact same phenomenon that people have fewer children and populations actually stabilize. So again, not a credible concern, um, and it has it really has nothing to do with the monetary supply. In fact. What it would what it would insist when when you think about like money as a pricing mechanism, this is this is one of the things that people deeply deeply misunderstand and or just have no foundation for is what a price is. It is it is literally a market signal, and that's the purpose of money is to give the most clear, uh, uh, unmanipulative, um, or unmanipulated and precise pricing within an economy as to where resources and labor are desired and needed in the economy to distort that pricing structure only worsens the situation and what's funny is to think that we should manipulate the supply when those prices start to move is to completely misunderstand the point of the price moving is to suggest that we should ch we should change our market behavior whether that is based on you know, we've lent too much money and we don't have the productivity to back it up, something that happens constantly, and then they reinforce it by printing the money supply to, um, to fake that market signal, to, to suggest that the market signal is telling everyone to um, continue going into debt, even though we are already over leveraged. That's, what the, that's it's literally what it does. And then at the exact same time, it's suggesting that we should respond to the market signal which is still our measurement for deciding whether or not we should increase the supply or not. So it's a reactionary thing. It's not something that you can preempt. You have to wait for the market price to signal something different and then increase or decrease the supply accordingly. So what you're doing is you're just defeating the market's ability to actually allocate stuff efficiently. You're just saying we shouldn't have markets, we shouldn't have prices, and none of that does us any good. What we should instead is figure out how to make it so that these prices don't tell us anything and they just remain remain nominally uh, the same, which ends up not happening at all. Uh, it, it actually inflates the prices massively and causes even worse distortions. But the supposed concept or the supposed goal is to have nominal, um, nominal as in the number itself, which is totally arbitrary, but that the number itself remains constant for no, no good reason, really. But when, we, when we're addressing the whole prices issue, quote-unquote, um, that, uh, that hits three different major concerns. And we've talked about these in a couple of different ways on the show. We actually talked about them a little bit in Connor Brown's previous piece that we talked about, about um, Bitcoin has no intrinsic value, and that's great. I'll actually link to his uh, other article. If you have not listened to that one, highly, highly recommend it. Connor Brown always has some great stuff. Definitely check out his Medium page. Links all available. Don't forget the show notes. Don't forget the Twitter posts, all that good stuff. Um, but uh, workers being outraged at nominal Bitcoin wages falling. Now, I love the little chart that he's got about the price levels throughout the 1800s showing that they fall over time 
even though wages were actually upward. And what's funny is you actually, there's, there's a very intuitive reason that this would actually be the case because uh, the falling prices are natural. So, so when it goes into the price basics, price, the, the price of goods falling, if we've got a stable monetary supply, is a consequence of human labor being more productive. It means that just I use the example of a toothbrush. Over time, as it becomes easier and cheaper to produce this toothbrush because the first machine that we used to stamp these things out was very experimental and it was very expensive and there weren't many of them, then all the toothbrush companies adopted this machine and then every one of them made incremental improvements and the, the company that was making the machines that makes toothbrushes makes improvements and then they compete with each other, et cetera, et cetera. It gets better and better and better. Everybody continues to use their profits of highly priced goods to... Um, like the higher profit margins um, come with uh, markets with fewer entrants um, and uh, fewer companies. So those higher price margins, uh, or higher profit margins, excuse me, um, particularly for very nascent, like, like new um, markets that do not have a robust industry yet, are exactly what drive more people into the market and what fuel the... Um, uh, the incredible pace of efficiency increases in the capital goods that create those new markets. Um, so uh, like, like chip manufacturing and the machines that create chips, those things speed very, very quickly when you've got some new chip that's like a breakthrough and has you know twice the profit margin as a normal chip that you would sell on the market. And of course, you've got everybody desperately trying to invest in this new machine um, and iterating on how to do that better and faster very, very quickly. And you see things like the incredible deflationary price um, trends that we've had in the computer and technology industries for 30 years, 40 years, um, without breaking. Uh, and um, that's, it's, that's an entirely natural process. This is what the market does with everything. Things over a long enough time period simply get easier to produce. And it doesn't even have to be technology around that thing specifically, but technology around making it cheaper and cost less energy for people to get to work, where some people don't actually have to drive to the location, but they can do part of the job from home and require much less labor and other people's time and money in order to produce their section of that productivity machine, which is what a business is. So as this, as this happens... What you're seeing is that the amount of human time and labor it takes to produce a thing is less. So that thing is less expensive. But at the same time, the reason the human, the, the actual labor cost, the compensation for it would not decrease is because that productivity increases for, for the time that they are working. So yes, the toothbrush is like a tenth as expensive as it was before, but the person that is working the job to produce the toothbrushes is also producing 10 times as many toothbrushes because of the new machinery, because of the ability to work from home, because of the machines that, you know, allow them, the computers that allow them to communicate much faster and, um, the, you know, the vehicles that allow them to get to work with less cost, et cetera, et cetera. So the exact same time that their um, toothbrush is getting less expensive and or their cost of living in, in a broad sense when you extrapolate this out into every industry, into every good in the market, that everything is getting better um, at, at incremental values over uh, longer time spans. 
and each person is getting more productive, which is keeping their wages nominally the same, despite the fact that they're having an increase in the standard of living. Their wages now go further to, to purchase more goods, to um, uh, actually make their life better than it did originally. You had the exact opposite effect that you have now, where if I was getting paid $100,000 a year in the 90s, then I was unbelievably wealthy. But if I'm getting paid $100,000 a year now, I'm doing all right. I'm doing pretty good. But that's not what that's not the same in the 90s. Um, housing prices, I can't afford nearly the house that I could in the 90s. Like There's a huge difference in the value of the money over that time. And it is specifically hurting those who are stuck on wages. Those are the people who are hurt worst. So... The fact that they are attempting to be like he he's got a he's got a great line um going into uh like sticky wages and talking about this, particularly like when you talk about the you have that graph from the what WTF happened in nineteen seventy one about the, the the complete separation between the actual productivity and compensation of workers since nineteen, you know, seventy two ish. Absolutely insane. Mm-hmm to look at all of the uh, secondary and tertiary effects of breaking from sound money. And that one is powerful. That our compensation has moved very, very little from 1972 to 2017, while our productivity is skyrocketing, which obviously leads to social social unrest and unfortunately leads, leads people to think socialism is some sort of an answer to what is essentially a socialism problem, where we have monetary socialism now. Like, that's what it is. We've nationalized the money and... Um, we have uh, completely divorced its supply and pricing from anything that is in the market, uh, and we've manipulated the entire financial market to do to to operate and adjust based on policy, not actually market signals. It's total financial socialism. Like that's what we have. If you've got a problem with the banking industry, you hate socialism. That's what you hate. And the fact that you or someone else may not understand that that's what it is is irrelevant because that's what it is. There is no market as directly and deeply controlled by committee and policy and government and central banking um, or central, central planning institutions as money in this economy is. And it's fascinating to me uh, in multiple different ways that those things that are truly the cause of so much of what the critics are scared to death of, that... They are literally more scared of the solution and simply ignore the fact that they're completely, completely ignorant of what the actual cause of those things are. And I guess that's really the nature of politics is to take advantage of people's ignorance and sell them um, more control, which is, you know, we cause a problem and then we blame it on somebody else and then you then hire us to solve the problem. That's kind of the game of politics in a nutshell. Um, to be perfectly honest. But sound money is the only stable and sustainable solution to this issue. Um, and it's the only one that actually actually can solve it in a real sense. Um, but it's not solvable. It's one of those things that's like a trend and a set of incentives. Like, like Bitcoin itself is not secure in the fact that like nobody can change it. It's that the incentives and the trend is for it to be very hard to change. And markets work that same way. There's no solving inequality because there's no such thing as solving inequality. It's just a trend 
and a system to set up incentives that will eliminate those things which create systemic equality, um, inequality, excuse me, um, that create systemic authority and issues with corruption and manipulation that result in things like the Keynesian effect and, and, the, and the unbelievable political and economic privilege that comes from being well-connected to the machine that manipulates uh, the entire monetary base, that, that literally manipulates all of the economic signals. Like, there is no greater power in our economy. Um, in a society where people are trade-dependent, where we have a, a huge dis, uh, division of labor between all different parties um, and massive specialization, uh, that there is no greater power than power over the monetary medium by which all of those people transact. Um, so it, it's the greatest way to have unfair wealth outside of really just violent dictatorial control over the population. Um, it's the sneakier, hidden version of the same thing, really. But yeah, there is no better thing for the poor and the lower classes and for wage compensation um, and in anything else than sound money. Uh, in fact, what we have seen is since we have lost sound money, we've seen the greatest amount of damage to all of those things and a, uh, uh, you know, sticky wages, like that, that wages are a, in fact, the fact that wages are sticky is actually an argument for a deflationary currency, not against, because yes, they, it is to suggest that while the standard of living increases, it will take longer for their wages to decrease in proportion. It's a, it's a tendency for things to um, default to the upper side of compensation, to overcompensate workers as opposed to undercompensate workers, where in the opposite, if you have sticky wages in an inflationary um, economy, what you're saying, what, what actually happens is that wages take longer to actually catch up to a decrease in standard of living. So as the standard of living continues to drain and the, uh, the amount that you're actually getting paid uh, is constantly diluted, it takes longer for the wages to actually be increased to compensate you for the loss. So you're in a constant everybody's catching up phase, like everybody's running on the, running the wrong direction on that little that path, you know, the thing in the, um, uh, the, the sidewalk, the moving sidewalk in the airplane, in the airport, uh, everybody's walking the wrong direction. Whereas in a deflationary situation, when we're complaining, quote unquote, about sticky wages, we're doing the exact opposite. We're walking with the moving sidewalk. So it's better all around, no matter what. And people can bitch all day about like, oh, I got a 10% reduction in my salary, but okay, yeah, I can afford 20% more with that 10% reduction, but still, I'm upset, you know. Well, the dogs, hold on a second. All right, and then we move on to the increasing real debt burdens. And I'm glad he brought this one up, actually, or he argued it the way that he did um, because it is usually something that um, I avoid. I usually kind of dodge this issue, not because I, I'm scared of it or anything, but uh, simply because I think it's harder to... I think he does a really good job of explaining something that's difficult to understand. Um, but that we're in the middle of a monetization phase. And yes, it makes zero sense to price debt in Bitcoin um, and to pay it out in Bitcoin interest because we've it, because Bitcoin is not money. Bitcoin is not a stable 
incredibly liquid monetary good yet. It is a multi-decade maturation process to actually get to that point. Again, it's an S-curve. So when we get past the, the top of that S and actually find stability, well, then Bitcoin will become a unit of account and a medium of exchange because it will be the best pricing monetary good that there is. But of course, during the S-curve, during monetization, you would never want to issue debt in something that was going to double or triple in, um, in nominal prices in a matter of six months or a year or something like that. But that is not at all going to happen forever. Its purchasing power will increase and it will represent the increased productivity of the economy, but it will not just continue. We won't just have an infinite amount of free demand. We run out of people to adopt Bitcoin at some point. Um, when, when it becomes a monetary good, it will be stable. That's the whole point of all of this, to find real price signals in the market, which you can only do with a constant monetary base. That's how you get the best money, is you have the most sound monetary base um, to start from, and then you can have real uh, uh, pricing signals. And, and that's one of the things that like I try to bring up um, multiple times, is that to have a constant monetary base means that we will actually have the best pricing mechanism for time that we've ever had, particularly when Bitcoin's security and all of its market is based on a, uh, a security over time prospect. So we'll have multiple layers of being able to price what, what is actually valuable, what the next two years are worth versus today, which right now we have a market run by a Fed, by, by a manipulated money supply that's specifically working day and night to obscure the price of time, which is why you get this huge boom and bust cycle and you get this massive over-leveraging because while the market is trying to say, you know, guys, you need to calm the, the F down for just a second and you need to stop taking out loans because we don't have the resources for this. You just started building 300,000 new houses and we only have wood for 150,000 houses. Calm down. When the market is trying to tell us that, the Fed is literally like just dumping money into the economy to be like, don't worry about these market signals. Loan, take out twice as many loans and build 600,000 houses. Um, and the, the Ray Dalio's um, chart that he shows, um, uh, the GDP growth and the, the actual production over time and showing the over-leveraging and then trying to catch back up, is a really great illustration of how that concept plays out and like what it means for us to be over-leveraged and then have to have this huge correction in which all of the money and the capital, the actual capital and resources are funneled into the financial sector who own all the collateral now because of the, the debt crisis. It's one of those things that uh, worsens, yet again, worsens the Cantillon effect um, at the expense of the middle class and lower class workers. But then we've got the concern number three, stagnant growth from decreased investment or spending, um, which again, when you think about it on its face, um, it makes no intuitive sense. Um, like kind of like a really basic surface level thing. Uh, if you don't understand that money is just a good like any other and that people will hoard one good versus another, whichever one simply 
uh, pays, it simply stores value the most, you've done, ap- you've done nothing meaningfully different to what people will actually do. Like to say that they should store money in houses versus money does not mean that you've done anything meaningfully different. You've just destroyed the fact that money is the one good specifically designed to carry value through time and houses are needed to actually live in. So if people are parking value there, um, this was in, uh, what is the, wait a second, was it Connor Brown's article? It might have been Connor Brown's article about how um, like a third of luxury housing was actually purchased and sits empty um, for most of the year in like, like large cities. I think New York was the example. It might have been Connor Brown's other article, The Bitcoin Has No Intrinsic Value. Um, I'll confirm that. Unfortunately, my medium, uh, unfortunately, quote, you read a lot. We like that. You've reached the end of your free member preview for this month. And I still don't pay for medium. I get around it by using VPN and logging in from a bunch of different accounts. <laughs> I'm cheap. <laughs> but the, the, the idea is that you've, you're, you've done nothing. You've done nothing meaningful. Like to think that, oh, you're going to make people completely change their behavior by destroying one mechanism for them to save money. Um, and uh, the one mechanism that is, or the one good that they want to store value in that isn't consumptive, that isn't used for any other purpose. Like that's what, the fact that the money has a monetary premium is the best thing ever if it does not have any other use case because it means prices simply adjust. You can't, when you're hoarding, quote unquote, when you're saving money, you are not taking anything away from anyone else because it is just the pricing mechanism by which we measure everything else against. So what you are actually doing when you save money is producing value and goods into the economy without taking anything out. You're producing a surplus for other people and pushing prices down based on your non-consumption, your lack of consumption. You're making it easier for other people to afford the value, the production, and the services that you provide in exchange for what is a non-consumptive good, a good that can't be used for anything else money in this case that is a great thing and is a great way to help other people in the economy you're not taking money from everybody else you're lowering the prices for everyone else and decreasing the cost of their living increasing their living standards the only way that you can believe hoarding money is bad for the economy is to completely misunderstand what the price actually does and that the fact that the price is totally arbitrary in uh in relation to how much money is in circulation versus the amount of goods available it does absolutely nothing to hurt other people when you save money in fact just the opposite it makes the economy more resilient because you have saved resources that you can command later on so that during a recession You can come out and basically save the day. You can rebalance the economy. You can arbitrage uh, from a productive time in the economy to an unproductive time in the economy, and you can save those people the jobs they would have lost by being the consumer when no other consumers are there and prices have fallen. So it's the exact opposite of the, the, the default assumption, which is just profoundly ignorant of what money is and what pricing actually does. Um, 
And that's what I find over and over again is the base misunderstanding of all of these things is to have no idea what a price is, why it changes, or what it means, and to have no idea what the actual role of money is uh, and the fact that almost all of its value is derived from the fact that it's a good pricing mechanism. It's a good thing to measure against, and it itself is not a good. So there's literally nothing else that we would want anybody to hoard. You don't want to hoard food because then people the price of food is raised you don't want to hoard houses because then the price of housing is raised you hurt the poor you hurt the people who can't afford those things now or can only afford them at the current rate by forcing people to store value in real commodities in actual consumption goods that people really need you need water food and shelter you don't need bills you don't need bitcoins they don't you don't eat them you don't live inside them how is it better for people to take actual resources and things that we actually need out of the economy as opposed to money? Anyway, so that's kind of, that's kind of the fundamental thing that drives me crazy about that argument. Um, uh, but that at the same time, that it's not even the case. Um, uh, so out, outside of just the, the natural, I think, misunderstanding that you know, forcing people to invest in things is going to be better, particularly when they're just investing blindly, you know, putting money in mutual funds and just bloating a financial industry that's already mismanaged and over leveraged. So stupid. It's the opposite of anything sort of efficient or causing economic growth. Um, it just causes people to lose money at the expense of the banks, uh, excuse me, at the, at the profit and benefit to the banks and financial institutions. Um, so not only do I think that's a total misunderstanding uh, because people's behaviors don't change. People don't less want to make their lives better in the future and less want to store value. They just become desperate for looking anywhere to put value uh, because money no longer does that job. You know, savings accounts no longer do that. They All of that bleeds, so they have to go put it somewhere else. So not only does it completely miss that point, but it also doesn't even do what it says. Um, uh, inflation makes people feel poor, and uh, causes people to um, go into debt, which just dries up purchasing power quicker. Um, and in the short term, it just causes really bad systemic problems and also just pushes money into bad investments and creates these zombie companies that are just propped up um, indefinitely and continue to waste resources for decades when they should have died in two years. Uh, so it's just an absurd proposition from both perspectives. And the idea that people... The, that you know people would get value uh, it just it, there's something really comical about um, saying that people will never spend money because it goes up in value when the only when money's not useful for anything other than spending um, like like spending in the sense that you have to to turn to be wealthy you actually have to use goods you actually have to consume um, like it's kind of like saying that nobody will ever buy a washing machine. They'll wash their clothes in the river because they could hold the money and be wealthy forever if they just wash their clothes in the river and they eat dirt. <laughs> like, like to actually, like he talks about it as the wealth effect. Um, but that when you get, when you feel wealthy, when you have suddenly, when your ten thousand dollars in savings suddenly turns into a hundred thousand dollars because you, you know, invested it all in Bitcoin or something like that, it is only. The only benefit to having that $100,000 is if you use some of it, like $20,000, to spend on things in the economy in order to make your life better. The whole goal of being wealthy 
is to have convenience and a high amount of consumption goods and, you know, basically fluffy corners all around you to keep out everything that's uncomfortable or sickly or, you know, all, all the bad things in the world. You're creating a buffer around those things and producing extra leisure and um, what you want to do with your, with your own time. And to do that, you have to consume. It's impossible to be wealthy indefinitely by not consuming anything. So to say people will all become billionaires and hoard money indefinitely is to say that, you know, we will all be billionaires and nobody will even buy milk with it. Like, we'll just be, we'll all be sitting on our money doing nothing with it, which is just silly. Like, nobody has to be coerced into consuming. This is the natural state of humanity. It is the one thing that we need no incentive for, and we do not need to increase or push or pressure people to do whatsoever, because people will always do it. There is never a time in which you have to worry about people not consuming things. Holy crap, I've already gone for a really long time. Okay, um, I think we hit most of this. This was just a really good piece. Uh, another great one from Connor Brown. Huge thank you to him for letting me read this on the show. Um, as always, he's always got great work. And I uh, hope you guys enjoyed it and my uh, commentary afterward. So, per usual, don't forget to check out Connor Brown. Don't forget to check out his Medium page. Drop some applause on this article. And I will have all those links in the show notes. And, of course, there's lots of other things to explore there, both in the footnotes um, as well as uh, WTFHappenedIn1971.com, a great resource uh, for anybody who tells you, uh, you know, inflationary money is great. Drop that link. Just make that your default standard. If anybody says, oh, it's capitalism causes high prices and blah, blah, like just drop WTF happened in 1971.com. Be like, yeah, that's not, that's not how that works. It's sound money problem or say lack of sound money problem. Um, and uh, that one's hard to argue with. You just look at chart after chart of like, holy shit, literally what the fuck happened in 1971. So thank you guys so much for listening. I am Guy Swan. This is The Crypto Economy. Uh, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at The Crypto Economy. If you have not, you're crazy if you haven't, so uh, you should get on that right now. And, of course, subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss the Audible for Bitcoin articles because that's what we do here. And I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. Share this out with everyone you know in the Bitcoin and crypto economy space. And until next time, Take it easy, guys. Thank you.